the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a blessed day. Um, I'm your host, Al Fadi, and uh, this is... uh, let Us Reason on KPXQ 1360, Faith Talk Radio. And uh, today we are going to continue, basically, our um, topic on comparing and contrasting the Islamic Caliphate, known in Arabic uh, as Khilafah, and uh, the Kingdom of God. And uh, today we're going to go through uh, some of the questions that we either covered last time or at least continuation of the same topic. For instance, if creating the Caliphate throughout the world is the primary goal of Islam or, let's say, people like ISIS, for instance, then where is this caliphate or Islamic state modeled today, for instance? Where is it modeled today so that we know that what is being attempted by some, so-called, at least that's what the Uh, Modern Muslims want to call them as jihadis or fundamentalists who hijack the image of Islam. Uh, Let's say, you know, what what is the best, uh, basically, model, for instance, that will contrast to what ISIS is trying to do? Or is there any Islamic state to begin with that we can look at today, for instance? Well, you hear names like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, even in Sudan, all of them have um, uh, Sharia law and other things that are being practiced um, similar to the early days of Islam. Um, But technically speaking, what do we see being imposed under those rules? Do you see any democratic vote, for instance, in countries like uh, Saudi or Afghanistan or Pakistan, or Sudan? Do you see women have rights in most of these areas that I mentioned, if not all of these areas? Is Sharia law the only law, or is there any other laws permitted as well? And if all laws are corrupt and Sharia law is there to replace these corrupted man-made laws, uh, then uh, why are there no good models of this Sharia law to view? Because ISIS, for instance, today claims that countries like Iran and Saudi do not follow the pure Sharia law instituted by the Prophet of Islam. In fact, there was no such thing as Sharia law during the Prophet of Islam's time, by the way. Sharia law is something that continued to progressively grow for over 300 years after the time of the Prophet. But I get it. I, I think what, what they're trying to say is the principles that are being followed today do not match, in their view at least, uh, the early Islamic State instituted in, 90, uh, in uh, the year 624 A.D. by the Prophet of Islam himself. So, 
Even today, there is contradictions among um, different Muslim factions. And by the way, let me remind you of what our Lord Jesus Christ says, a kingdom divided among itself is not of God. This is important. If Islam is something sent by God, then this will truly prove that God is a liar. But God says, no more. Jesus is it. And he completed the mission. And Jesus himself says, a kingdom divided among itself is not of God. So what do you think is happening in the Middle East today? Divisions among Muslims that are taking place right now. And um, in some of the chapters of the Quran, like chapter 24, verse 55, chapter 63, verse 8, um, the God of Islam promised uh, to uh, um, uh, give a political power if Muslims in general live in submission to his law. Yet we don't see such a um, uh, fulfillment of uh, this promise at all throughout the history of Islam. We see parts of it, uh, but we still see divisions coming out of it as well, which tells us that really if God wants to keep his promise, he would have kept a model all the time for the people and other Muslims to look at and learn from it. But that's not the case, of course. Um, this leaves us really with some options. Uh, does that mean that this model that God claimed to be the perfect model is wrong for mankind? Is it outdated? Well, there are some uh, Muslim reformers, by the way, that I want to tell you that Sharia law of the 7th century is outdated for the 21st century. These are Muslims that are telling you this. This isn't uh, Orientalist or people who are uh, not followers of the Islamic uh, faith. And uh, maybe... Could it be that uh, this so-called the Islamic State model is nothing but a fancy? Maybe it's a fantasy in someone's mind, and uh, this is why we have divisions, because everyone fantasizes about what it should look like. But with that in mind, uh, let's look at then um, what would have been that model that someone is trying to say current modern-day Islamic State should be modeled after. Let's say if it was a fantasy indeed— uh, this fantasy is based on what? Do they have evidence of something in the past, maybe, that they feel that today's Islamic State or Caliphate or Khilafah in Arabic or in, uh, basically uh, should be modeled after? Well, let's see. I mentioned before that the early and the first Islamic State established in the year 624 A.D. by the Prophet of Islam himself and the first phase of this lasted until the year 661, because that included, in 624 until 632, the Prophet himself in the time frame where he established a proto-Islamic state. That's what I like to call it, a proto-Islamic state, the model for others to follow. And after his death came the so-called the righteous uh, or the rightly guided caliphs, uh, those included Abu Bakr, starting in 632, ending with the fourth caliph, Ali, who died in, or assassinated, might I add, in the year 661. So you have Abu Bakr who lived for two years, 632 until 634. He was immediately after the time of the Prophet. But at the same time, the division between the Sunni and the Shia began to emerge because there was a battle uh, and debate uh, initially and then evolved into uh, civic war. Uh, between the majority followers, companions of the Prophet who wanted to have one of their own, starting with Abu Bakr, and the minority 
family of the Prophet, the bloodline relatives, who wanted Ali to be the one who happens to be number four in this case. So you start with Abu Bakr, two years, died naturally. Then came Omar from 634 until 644, almost 11 years, but he was assassinated. Then came Uthman, the third caliph, in 644 until 656, he was assassinated. And then came Ali, served for five years from 656 until 661, he was assassinated. Does that tell you anything about the nature of that Islamic state? Immediately, right after the Prophet's time, we have these civic war and assassinations. So is this the model? Because this is, by the way, what it's called the Salaf. That's the Salaf that the Wahhabis or the Ibn Taymiyyah movement in the 13th centuries or uh, the uh, ISIS people today or Al-Qaeda or uh, the Muslim Brotherhoods uh, and many others want to go back to this period they called the Salaf or the early Islam, basically, or early Islamic community. Well, we don't see any peace in here. We see nothing but division and assassinations and uh, chaos, uh, to say the least. And then, what are the sources, actually? Now, we, we know that there was those so-called rightly guided caliphs that I mentioned who followed the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad. But what are the sources that we have today that tells us about that period, at least? How that period uh, basically was, uh, uh, how did it emerge? Um, what was going on through that time? Uh, how, how was the law imposed? Uh, what kind of democracy was pra- being practiced? Uh, how did Sharia law work, um, the system of government, and so on and so forth? Um, do we have eyewitness accounts to all of this? Well, incidentally, we find that the earliest eyewitness account is the biography of the Prophet by Ibn Ishaq, was actually around 765. Remember, the Prophet died in 632. So we're already 130 years past his time. And we have the first one. And then most of his biography was lost until his student, Ibn Hisham, in 833. There you go. Uh, That's almost like 50 years after the time of his teacher, and 180 times after the time of the Prophet, that he wrote his extensive biography, which far exceeded what Ibn Ishaq's biography would have been. In fact, even there are Muslims in his time that doubted most of the information that he had in there. And then, a couple of years after Ibn Hisham, we had another biography known as uh, Kitab al-Maghazi, deals with the, uh, basically, the uh, military campaign of the Prophet and uh, the early Islam by Al-Waqidi. That was in 837. So already about 190 years, give or take, after the time of the Prophet. You see what's going on. You have that many years between the event itself and the first credible eyewitness record. I mean, so what happened in between? Do we have any other eyewitness accounts in between Uh, that tells us or collaborate with this written record is correct. And then you get to the collections of the sayings of the Prophet, starting by uh, Al-Bukhari in 870 AD. Remember, the Prophet died in uh, 632, so already 250 years later, the first record of the Prophet's sayings and teachings which many of them apply to Sharia law, if not all of them are used uh, by a Sharia law court uh, to confirm certain judgments or decisions in addition to the Quran. 
Then you have Al-Tabari, one of the prominent Islamic, basically, commentators of the Quran, who wrote also historical records in 923, uh, already 300 years after the time of the Prophet, Al-Tabari. Then you have Ibn Kathir also, who even wrote uh, one of the major historical books, Kitab al-Tabaqat al-Kabir, uh, the uh, uh, book of the major layers, basically. That's uh, what it's called. Or maybe eras, if you want to translate it that way, because that's what he's referring to, different eras, different times. Uh, that would have been uh, around the, um, give or take, 13th century, 12th, 13th century, because he was one of the students of Ibn Taymiyyah. So the Prophet died in the 7th century, Kitab al-Tawakat al-Kabir, or uh, this major um, historical book by Ibn Kathir, who was also a commentator on the Quran, came 500 years later. So these are the sources that people like ISIS or Al-Qaeda or anyone would have looked at to come up with their conclusion that Islamic State today must follow what these people are recording. How do we know that these eyewitnesses uh, accounts that I just mentioned to you are even accurate. I mean, they all started at hundred year and hundred year plus after the time of the prophet. So anything could have happened in a hundred year. People's memory would have faded. Uh, people would have died. Are you telling me someone uh, who lived at the time of the prophet remained alive until Ibn Ishaq wrote his record for hundred and thirty years? We don't even know if such a person ever existed. And how many people would have lived 130 years anyway at that time? So uh, you see the point. Uh, everything is really, most likely, many of the contents are pure fantasy. People just wanted to make sure that they wrote nothing but good things and eliminated any negative things, even if the, such negative uh, records or accounts would have existed also at the time when they were recording these things. So should we trust them? Can a Muslim person really trust accounts like this when it's based on oral traditions, which is weak at best? And the, and the proof of this, by the way, is that we have a collection of hadith that is classified as weak, as a matter of fact. Some of it classified as strange hadith. In other words, even the one who collected it is doubting that the Prophet might have said something like this. So, what's the difference between those weak and strange hadith and the other accounts that are recorded to us in the biography of the Prophet? These are questions I want you, my Muslim brothers and sisters and friends listening to me, to ask yourself. Can you trust those resources? I hear all the time that one of the arguments a Muslim would raise against the gospel is like it were written a hundred years after the time of the, uh, uh, our Lord Jesus. Not at all. Some of it written within like 30 to 40 years, others within 50 years, other less than uh, basically 70 years. I mean, that's impressive. And we have physical eyewitness account people who lived and saw. We're not talking just people who went by memory. Just read the intro to the Gospel of Luke. Read the intro to the book of Acts. Uh, go to the many letters in the New Testament and see how Paul iterated the fact that there is traditions that were passed, uh, uh, passed, were passed down basically to the church from eyewitness accounts, and how uh, Peter himself recorded certain incidents that he was eyewitness to, and so on and so forth, like in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. I mean, we have plenty of evidence, not to mention, of course, 
archaeological discoveries, manuscript evidence, extra-biblical writings, non-Christian historians, all of those that corrobor- uh, collaborate all of the records that we have compared to what I just mentioned to you. So we ought to really ask the hard questions. Now, one of the things that Sharia law actually is promoted as uh, a law given by God to protect even non-Muslims. That's usually the uh, propaganda, the cell. It's not only for Muslims, but also to protect young Muslims. Let me ask you, non-Muslims, let me ask you this question. If you've been following ISIS in the last two years, do, does the name Yazidis mean anything to you? What happened to the Yazidis at Mount Sinjar? Just go and Google it if you haven't even listened to it. Those were minority. They were not Muslims. How were they treated? Were they treated with respect and protection? I'm sure the answer would be no. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about the many uh, mass graves that were being discovered now after the Kurdish uh, troops took over and kicked ISIS out of the area. And the status, by the way, of the non-Muslims who live basically under Islamic law is called demis or demitudes, technically speaking, protected people. That's what it translates to. Well, let's see. During the time of the Prophet, who happens to be the model for the Islamic State. In the year 624, the first year he established the Islamic States, uh, he dealt with a, a tribe, uh, a Jewish tribe known as Banu uh, uh, Kainaka. And Banu Kainaka, by the way, uh, were exiled to the north of the Arabian Peninsula after a battle, okay? He was ac- accused them basically of uh, uh, t- being traitors uh, that did not work with him. 625 AD, two years after the establishment of the Islamic State by the Prophet of Islam, Banu Nadir, that's another Jewish tribe, exiled to an area known as Khaybar, uh, around basically modern-day Tabuk uh, in the northwestern region of Saudi Arabia. Also after another battle known as the Battle of Uhud, because they were also accused of uh, conspiring against him. No evidence, by the way, of such thing. 627 uh, AD, uh, three years or almost four years after the establishment of Islamic State by the Prophet of Islam, who is the model for the Islamic State, he dealt with another tribe known as Banu Quraiza. Guess what happened? Islamic sources say between 600 and 900 men were beheaded. Gee, it sounds like what ISIS did just recently. Women and children were made concubines and slaves. It sounds like what ISIS was doing today. And captives after the battle of the trenches, basically, and also were accused of being traitors against him. I'm, I'm not so sure, really, if what we're reading right now uh, resembles exactly what ISIS has been doing by killing many of even Muslims, by the way, in areas like Mosul, in uh, areas like Fallujah right now. Uh, they're claiming that these Muslims are uh, turning their back against ISIS and working with the coalition forces. So that's why they're killing him as traitors. Where do you think they got this idea from? Why do you think ISIS called everything they do the prophetic method, the prophetic way? Because they're following the footstep of the prophet. Remember those Banu uh, Nadir in 625 that were kicked out to an area called Khaybar? Guess what? In 628 AD, Khaybar was attacked and a Dimma treaty, a protection treaty, uh, was uh, established uh, to technically become the model And as a result of this, those Jews were forced to pay protection taxes, 
right? And the Christians were forced to provide rooms in churches for the Muslims to basically rest in and pray in and so on and so forth. And you cannot really um, do any new buildings and uh, you must also dress up differently and so on and so forth until Omar came in 648, the second uh, rightly guided caliph, Omar, who expelled all the Jews and the Christians out of the Arabian Peninsula. Till this day, by the way, his uh, basically command to expel him, which is in um, agreement with the prophet's wish and his will before his death that all Jews and Christians be expelled out of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, till this day, uh, Muslims will not tolerate uh, the idea that uh, Saudi, for instance, will allow the building of such churches. In fact, some of them are even upset with Kuwait and United Arab Emirates of allowing the building of churches for Christians because they consider those uh, areas part of the Arabian Peninsula and it's a violation of the Prophet's will and what Omar has done. But I thought Islam is a religion of peace and tolerance and it allows minorities uh, and other religious minorities to live peacefully. I'm not so sure why uh, there is this uh, outrage about those kind of things. And if the idea of the material and protection of minorities provided such protections... Were the minorities in their midst actually protected, indeed? Well, uh, you know, let's take an example of what took place in the area of Andalusia, the southern parts of Spain. And you will find that many Muslim uh, uh, or basically scholars or even presidents try to make the claim that Islam provided actually tolerance and protection. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, President Obama says Islam has a proud tradition of tolerance. We see it in the history of Andalusia. Uh, in The Economist, we read this. Muslim rulers were far more tolerant of people of other faith than were Christian ones. For example, Al-Andalus, multicultural, multi-religious states ruled by Muslims. Okay, uh, uh, Maria Menacal at Yale University. Uh, this is what she said. The new Islamic policy in Spain, following the Quranic mandate, by and large protected them. That them is the minorities. Okay, well, um, I guess everybody's saying that um, they were protected. Well, if that's the case, then um, that goes against uh, history. Uh, because someone like um, uh, Dario Fernandez Morera said this, uh, who was a scholar also. Um, in 2016, uh, in uh, page 33 in his writing, says this, there are several problems with this argument, the argument that Islam was uh, protecting minorities in Andalusia or in Spain. First, it overlooks the fact that Muslim chronicles of the Muslim conquest portray jihad as a holy war, not as a peaceful individual struggle or exertion for self-improvement. And that Andalusian Muslim leaders saw their wars against the Christians as holy war as well. Hmm, that's interesting, because I thought we just heard that it was a model for tolerance. He said also the chronicles usually identify the invaders as Muslims and the Christians as idolaters, polytheists, infidels. Oh, that's nice. I mean, if there's tolerance, why do you have to call people names, right? Okay, well, um, we have other accounts stating that um, narrates how one of the Muslim commanders was inspired by a dream that he has of the Prophet and his companions. He saw him in a dream drawn swords, 
and entering into Spain, that by itself gave him this um, excitement to do the same. Well, we're approaching the end of our show, and I guess you get the idea. We will definitely continue with this topic until we cover many of its facets to show that the kingdom of God, biblically speaking, is by far the best model for anyone as compared to any other so-called kingdom or caliphate. And that's in and of itself a proof that the caliphate is nothing but a fantasy, an invention, an innovation by someone's own, uh, basically, uh, wishful thinking. Well, if you are tuning in, you've been listening to... um, uh, let us reason. I'm your host, Al Fadi. You can always, by the way, go to our archive at um, soundclouds.com and search for Let Us Reason. And you can listen to all of the shows uh, starting from the very first season, very first, actually, uh, episode, uh, if you wish. You can also uh, connect with me uh, via, uh, via my email, Sira Ministries, Sira, C I R A, Ministries, plural, Sira Ministries at gmail.com. I'm your host, Al Fadi. Until we meet again, have a blessed week. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.